0: Right now on Matter of Fact, what's behind the rise of violent attacks on Asian Americans? Our elders being pushed over on sidewalks. Fear and anger rise as millions of Americans say they're a target of hate in their own country.
1: The impact is devastating for our community.
0: A new generation fights back against a long history of racism. Plus, block the vote?
2: 165 proposals in 33 states to restrict voting access
0: inside the GOP's plan to regain political power state by state then left freezing and in the dark for days what will it take to stop the Texas power grid from failing again and back on the mat Watch this determined mother of two mount a bold Olympic comeback.
3: People keep asking me, why are you doing this?
2: I'm Soledad O'Brien, welcome to Matter of Fact. Violence against Asians has been spiking during this pandemic, and now a deadly incident is drawing new attention to an often underreported problem. According to Stop AAPI Hate, AAPI stands for Asian American Pacific Islander, it's received nearly 3,000 reports of people being spat on or verbally or physically attacked since last spring. AAPI is just one group that's tracking hate incidents, so that number could actually be higher. Activists say racist rhetoric about COVID-19 may be fueling the rise. While the motivation isn't clear for several of these assaults, the effects are the same. We head to the Bay Area to meet young activists who are trying to stop the violence. This time of year is Lunar New Year, which is really important to a
4: lot of AAPI people and it's been really hard, I think, for a lot of the API community. We've been seeing a rise um, in incidents um, of violence. A lot of our elderly are being targeted. I'm Thomas Files, I'm 17 years old, and I'm a senior at California High School in San Ramon, California. I'm Kyleena Pana, and I'm 17 years old, and I'm a junior at the Urban School of San Francisco. We have a youth campaign that we started in the summer of 2020, and in this campaign, the youth interns interviewed over a thousand young people. Over a third of them had personal experiences with hate incidents. We hear things. Um, such as, you know, Ching Chong or um, the Ling Ling jokes. When the president uses things like China virus and Kung Flu, it gave a lot of people license to use that type of language towards, especially, the API
1: community. We need to denounce violence as a whole, and now we need to This is not new to our community, other. the anti Asian racism. My name is Cynthia Che, and I'm the co-executive director of Chinese for Affirmative Action.
2: I formed a volunteer patrol group about a year ago to protect the community and the elders in Chinatown. But that's not the solution, and it's not sustainable.
1: Historically, Asians have been subjected to being scapegoated, to being blamed whenever there's been an economic crisis or health crisis. The impact is devastating for our community, and that's why we were here today.
4: There is but one family. A lot of times when it comes to racism in America, I feel like a lot of Asian American communities are left out of that discussion. And I think that comes from, obviously, the model minority myth that the API community is, like, somehow ahead, and that's just, like, not true for every person, and that doesn't fully encapsulate the AAPI experience.
2: Violence against Asian communities has a long history in America, dating back to the 19th century. But it was the murder of Vincent Chin in Detroit in 1982 that mobilized the Asian community to fight for their civil rights. Two white men beat Chin to death a few days before his wedding. Chin was Chinese, but he was blamed for the rise of Japan's auto industry at a time when America was losing manufacturing jobs. His killers essentially got away with it. They received probation and a $3,000 fine. Helen Zia was a journalist at the time. She later became the spokesperson for the Justice for Vincent Chin campaign. Helen Zia, nice to have you uh, to talk about this. The judge in the Vincent Chin case uh, wrote about the men who killed Vincent. Um, These are not the type of men you send to jail. What did he mean, and what was it like hearing
1: that? When... community, and I would say not just the Asian American community, but the broader Detroit community heard that, there was just just an, an outpouring of outrage. If you don't send these two white men to jail, because they're not the kind of men to be punished for bashing another human being's brains out on the street, then who do you send to jail? And there was also no question in our minds that had a Chinese American man beaten to death, a white man, they would have locked them up and thrown away the key. So there was a a great feeling that there was racial uh, inequity there. It was just a a total perversion of, of, you know, it wasn't justice at all.
2: Describe for us what was happening in the country and in Detroit specifically in 1982.
1: In the Midwest, in Detroit, it was a depression. It was um, a depression that had begun in the late 70s. People had no idea whether they would even have jobs uh, ever again, decent jobs. So we're talking about a time that actually was not that different from today.
2: Did what happened to Vincent Chin, did it galvanize Asian Americans? And did it galvanize a bigger community than Asian Americans, people who came in sort of as allies to say, this is just not okay, regardless of, of what community you call
1: your own? So, Asian Americans came together because we realized, at a time when people who look Japanese were being targeted, like today, anybody who looks Chinese is being targeted, it brought all those Asian Americans together, and it also connected with Black, Latinx, uh, people of all faiths and um, colors and backgrounds. If any group was being targeted, that was harmful to all groups.
2: Attackers, in many cases, are, at least the cases that get the most attention, are from communities of color. Do you worry that you'll potentially pit communities of color generally against each other?
1: Yes, there is definitely a concern about pitting our communities together, and I think we're seeing that happen now. This has been going on for a long time and has involved attackers of every race, every color. And unfortunately, right now, so much attention is being given because the most recent things caught on video have been black attackers. And many of us in the Asian community feel like it's getting attention so that people of color can be highlighted as fighting or harming each other.
2: How much of this do you think, and maybe I'm going to phrase this awkwardly? But is it because other communities, for some reason, don't see Asian-Americans as fully Americans?
1: We can't ignore the fact that the last several wars that the U.S. has fought have been, you know, in the larger continent of Asia. And so these images of Asian-Americans always being the uh, the enemy here to destroy America never possibly becoming loyal Americans, or to be treated as though we could be trusted. That is something that we have been um, facing all along. We have to make ourselves part of the American democracy that talks about equality. The fact that you're born in this country, and that makes you a citizen, that was established by a Chinese American in the 1800s, a Supreme Court case. And that affects all Americans. And so we have to do that kind of education, you know, over and over again. But, um, you know, we can't just stand by and let these things happen.
2: Helen Zia, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank
1: you so much. Oh, the pleasure's mine. Thank you, Soledad. Coming up,
0: what does it mean for the rest of the country when the energy capital of the world loses power for days? Plus, if you can't beat them, stop them? how some lawmakers plan to make it harder to vote. And fans are flipping out over this retired mom's moves on the mat.
2: But back to matter of fact, nearly every state did something to make voting easier during the pandemic, like lifting restrictions on who could vote by mail, adopting early voting or sending mail ballot request forms or ballots to all registered voters. And we saw a record turnout by American standards. So with more people participating in democracy and no widespread voter fraud in the election in 2020 or even before that. States that are moving to roll back access to the ballot seem to be working to suppress the vote. I spoke with Danielle Lang. She's a voting rights attorney at the Campaign Legal Center. By February of this year, February 10th, uh, 165 proposals in 33 states aim to restrict voting access. And and the ways to do that would be limiting mail-in ballots, implementing voter ID laws, restricting registration options. Um, Walk me through where these proposals are coming from.
5: I think that this is a lot of fallout from the 2020 election in which uh, our elected leaders from the very top, uh, from President Trump on down uh, to a lot of local leaders, uh, fed Americans a series of untruths about how our elections work and claimed dysfunction where there was none. And as a result, there is a backlash and a kind of sense of among Republican legislators that they have to act on these big lies, they have to act on uh, the untruths that they fed to their constituents in, in order to safeguard the integrity of the election. So, places like Georgia and Arizona um, are in the spotlight, in Florida as well. And you have state legislators uh, trying to throw out election systems that have worked for them for decades, and have worked to elect them to office. Who's being
2: targeted, right? I mean, is it, okay? we're trying to target Black votes? Are we trying to target Latino votes? Are we trying to
5: target poor people? Is it just Democratic votes? I think that, clearly, there is a partisan view on this, which is that these measures that will make it harder to vote will make it harder for Democrats to vote. Um, And so I think, in that way, Republican legislators are trying to um, focus on Democratic voters. Instead, it really is poor people elderly people, people with disabilities um, and people in communities of color that are being targeted by these restrictions.
2: So ultimately states and, and counties run the voting systems, right So what can the government generally, the feds do to try to strengthen voter you know laws that would help people ha- have more access to voting and, and make it you know obviously safe but but
5: easier? For two sessions straight, the House has introduced a bill called H.R. 1 for the People Act and made it their number one priority to pass democracy reform and set a baseline so that while states and counties will continue to run our elections, there will kind of be a floor on voting access. H.R. 1 would do that. HR 1 would set kind of baseline rules on voter registration, on early voting, on absentee voting, and whatnot. Um, and so that's the most important thing that the federal government can do. These are bipartisan solutions that are, have been very popular in lots of red states for many years. Uh, but of course, uh, short of legislation, uh, the Biden administration also has an important role to play through the Department of Justice. Uh, there is an entire division of the Department of Justice devoted to civil rights and then to voting rights in particular. Uh, And that has laid dormant for the past four years. Uh, They uh, can bring uh, actions to enforce the Voting Rights Act, to to enforce other federal laws that we already have on the books that protect voting, like the National Voter Registration Act.
2: Danielle Lang, thanks for your time.
5: Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Coming up. A leap into history. Can this mom become one of the oldest gymnasts to compete in the Olympics?
2: Welcome back. When it comes to gymnastics, Simone Biles is widely considered the best in the sport. She's also considered old at the young age of 23. Well, now a fellow gymnast wants to shatter that narrative. Chelsea Memel of Wisconsin aims to launch a return to the sport at the age of 32. She's a three-time world champion. She won a silver medal at the 2008 Beijing Olympics, despite breaking her foot three days into training. And now, almost 13 years later, she has set her sights on the Tokyo Olympics.
3: People keep asking me, why are you doing this? Why are you doing gymnastics again? Why are you training again? You're 32, you're married, you have two children. I love gymnastics. That's the reason I'm doing it. I love doing gymnastics. I've been to three world championships. I have gold medals from two of them. I've been to the Olympics, have a silver medal, but also have had some untimely injuries. After I had my kids, I was like, I wanna get back in shape again. So I started conditioning a little bit. During the pandemic, the gym was closed. I started trying some of the skills that I used to be able to do. I wanted to do better and be better and get stronger. And then it got to the point where I was like, hmm, I should try flipping. See how that feels.
2: Great,
1: that healed. Oh, that
3: was pretty good. Gymnastics is my family's life. I mean, we we are all in the gym. My dad's, well, I brought him out of retirement, essentially, to, to coach me again.
5: There it is. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> she still has something else to give. Not just, let's go back to what we used to do, no, we're gonna push the boundaries.
4: This is not about getting her old skills back and being complacent with that. This is about getting new skills and pushing the boundaries of female gymnastics.
1: I was a little skeptical at first, but seeing her do all of these skills, I think her potential is insanely high.
3: Training? is a lot different these days. I'm training three days a week with gymnastics and then just doing conditioning days in between, which is totally different than when I was younger. I was training six days a week. You're so fast. (laughs) I feel like I'm a better mom because I take the time to do something for myself and they can see me working hard for something. That's a really great example. I feel like I'm setting for them. My goals. The a loaded question. If I could make the Tokyo Olympics, that would be incredible, but to just be in the mix would be amazing.
2: If Chelsea makes the U.S. Women's Olympic team, she would be the oldest gymnast in nearly 70 years.
0: Ahead on Matter of Fact is america prepared for the next big power outage plus after a year on lockdown some cities will give you cash to change zip codes but read the fine print first
2: welcome back to matter of fact when the power grid in texas failed during a massive storm it left millions freezing and in the dark and it raised questions about why texas even has its own power grid. The country is divided into three grids. One covers the eastern U.S., another the western states, and then there's the Texas grid, which covers nearly the entire state of Texas. The Electric Reliability Council of Texas, or ERCOT, is the unregulated nonprofit that operates the grid. It was formed in the name of energy independence, essentially to avoid dealing with regulation from the federal government. ERCOT said a deep freeze coupled with the high demand for power was too much for the grid. While some wind turbines did freeze, Sirkot said renewable energy was not the source of the failure. It was traditional sources of energy, like coal, nuclear power, and natural gas. Experts say the Texas crisis exposed how U.S. electric infrastructure may not be fully prepared to absorb steep climate-related spikes in demand for power.
0: Coming up, dreaming of relocating? THESE CITIES WILL PAY YOU TO MOVE.
2: FINALLY, CITIES ARE GETTING CREATIVE IN THE HOPE OF LURING NEW RESIDENTS. Natchez, MISSISSIPPI, WANTS TO BEEF UP ITS SMALL POPULATION OF 15,000 BY PAYING PEOPLE 6,000 BUCKS TO RELOCATE. YOU GET $2,500 FOR MOVING EXPENSES AND THEN $300 A MONTH FOR A FULL YEAR. Of course, there are a few stipulations. You must have a remote job. You have to buy a home valued at $150,000 or more, and you have to commit to living there for at least a year. The city's mayor hopes the program will boost property and sales taxes. Some cities are offering $10,000 to move, Tulsa, Oklahoma, Newton, Iowa, and an area in northwestern Alabama known as the Shoals. Before you start packing, be sure to read the fine print. That's it for this edition of Matter of Fact. I'm Soledad O'Brien, and I'll see you back here next week.
0: Listen to Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast provider. Watch us during the week on FYI and Pluto.